Greetings and salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is Judo Chop Suey Podcast, and I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman, coming back at you with another episode that is about two weeks later than I intended. And part of the reason for that is because I needed to conduct an interview, which you will hear later on in this episode, and just trying to coordinate the timing of that. And, and let me tell you, I have been busier now than I ever have over the past three years, if that's even possible. But it is. Because you know, my wife and I started a, a little online business to kind of supplement our income while she is out of work. And really, the thing has blown up uh, far bigger than I would have ever imagined. So on this episode of the Judo Chop Suey podcast, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to have a special guest on. His name is Tabrin Lee. And I'm also going to conduct a formal review of Grip Like a World Champion 2.0. But before I cover that, I want to get into what's been going on as well at home. You know, obviously with this, this story, you know, the only story that matters so the the coronavirus, boy, I tell you what, this is by far the biggest news story of my life. And I, you know, about a month ago, I just didn't even think that this would even be much of a thing. But this has blown up to something that I would have never, ever envisioned. And we've got, obviously, every single club, judo, jiu-jitsu, karate, aikido, Everything is closed now. It's a non-essential business. Well, it's essential to my health, but uh, as a public service, it's a non-essential business. And I feel very sorry for all of the instructors out there and club owners that have had to close their doors. Now, I'm continuing and will continue to support my own club, but you know, I have to believe there's been a slew of uh, membership cancellations because there's... As of this episode right now, there's no end in sight for this. And I can see all my Facebook friends, uh, Instagram friends, people I follow and such. Many of you guys are, you know, you're trying to, you know, stay in shape, uh, doing a lot of uchikomi, doing a lot of uh, other type of drilling and stuff. For me, I, I'm not one to do a whole bunch of uchikomi. I mean, I will at some point. I really haven't yet because... Really, for me, after 14 years, you know, most of my techniques just are, it's all muscle memory for me now. So I, I don't necessarily feel a great need to do, say, for example, 500 uchikomi a day. That Like, that that's what I used to do when I was coming up through the Q ranks. I used to do that many a day, and and I just, I just don't have that strong, compelling need to do that. I am keeping in shape. Um, I, I've got a rowing machine at home and I, I've, I've been using that to stay in shape and I watch Netflix documentaries, which I'm watching a fascinating one. I'll talk about it later in my after party, but, um, but I am staying in shape. Um, what I am doing is I'm actually having my wife put on a gi so I can practice gripping sequences because, and I'm going to talk about this later. I've been watching i i got this code from uh, judo fanatics um uh, uh maybe 3 or 4 weeks ago now uh where we were entitled to get one free video and i decided to get grip like a world champion and i'm going to do a formal review of this later later on in the episode i mean but um but i've been practicing gripping sequences with my wife and i've also been uh 
using my son as a training dummy of sorts. But I, actually, I shouldn't even say that because I've been teaching him a lot of Nawaza techniques. So really, uh, me and my son have been training judo during during this this time, and I, I feel very fortunate that he's willing to to work with me because one, he's he's actually taller than me, and he weighs about the same. So there's things that I can do in practice that I couldn't do with a, let's say if I had a training dummy, for example, I couldn't do that. And it's been great to work the basics with him, not only teaching the basics to see if I know what I'm talking about, but actually having a training partner to practice them with. So it's made a difference for me. And you know, what's interesting is he's done judo before with me just a, you know, a few times. And this was like, you know, maybe five years ago. Everything I tried to teach him, he questioned everything. Why do I have to do it this way? Why this? Why that? Well, you know, after, you know, three, four years of of marching band and doing performances and such, he's become extremely coachable. So there hasn't been any constant questions and he just he just does what I what I show him to do. And so we've been practicing, you know, Juju Katame, uh, Sankaku Jime and some of the basics of uh, Osaikomi uh, Waza. And not only that, from from a from a Nawaza point of view, the, the some of the jujitsu techniques that I've been working on have also been, uh, you know, working on over the past several months. Uh, I've been able to practice some things. So so basics like uh, passing the uh, half guard and and somebody's knee shield and and dealing with the spider guard, for example. These are all things that me and my son have been working on, and it's interesting to see him get some of these basics down and and again like I said before actually teaching these te- these techniques helps me reinforce my understanding of them for myself and I'm also I'm all, I've also spent a little bit of time um kind of tweaking my taitoshi I, I I know I've mentioned it before I've been doing been practicing taitoshi quite frequently over the past several months um I got some pretty good feedback or, or really good feedback from from Steve Scott when I sent uh a video of me doing it, and uh, to my surprise, he didn't think it was too bad. And after looking at the video of me doing Taitoshi, in hindsight, not too bad. There's some minor things that I'm going to correct. And the funny thing is, is that all the tweaking that I've been doing, the minor things that I'm going to do is just do the same stuff that I've always done. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure why I decided to tweak my Taitoshi, but I did, and, and um, I'm probably going to go back to doing it the old way. But Gosh, you know, Tayatoshi has been one of those throws, one of the few throws that I have tinkered with repeatedly, um, almost over fourteen years. Because when I, when I started judo, I was doing a lot of uchikomi at home, um, and and I I really suggest against beginners doing uchikomi, beginners and pe- people with really a. a Less than a year or two's experience, I would avoid doing uchikomi at home because you're going to instill uh, bad practice habits and bad technique habits because you've got nobody evaluating you. And that's exactly what happened with me and my Tayatoshi. It just was one of those throws that I was was uh, constantly doing uh, reps for uchikomi. And then when I started training with... Uh, with my main coach, Dave Middendorf, uh, turns out I was doing it wrong the entire time. And, and we really had to break that down. And my Taitoshi got developed into something that he liked, that he thought looked pretty good. 
uh, he actually once commented that he thought my Tayatoshi was was better than his, which was surprising because I always thought his Tayatoshi technique was was excellent. But then about three years ago, I started tinkering with it for some reason. I just I saw a video of myself doing it, and I'm like, nah, I don't I don't like that. It doesn't look like Neil Adams's. So, <laughs> well, whose does anyway? But so I started tinkering with it and tinkering with it, and now it's just become this. This kind of a mess. And, and, you know, the funny thing is, is that when I do Tayatoshi and Rondori, it, it it comes off smoothly, you know, the few times that I, I, I do it. But when demonstrating it, it's just not as smooth as I would like it to be. So, so again, I, I reached out to Steve Scott. He, he reviewed it. He thought it, I wasn't too far away. I just needed to make some adjustments with my step. And I see that now. So I'll probably do some... Tayotoshi Uchikomi just just to try and get back to the basics and record myself doing that. No, I will not post that online. But apart from that and practicing gripping sweet sequences, that's really all I'm going to be doing for the time being until this thing clears out, if it ever clears out. Because cause I, I can't really practice the timing of throws through Uchikomi. And, and that's kind of what, what I was really working on prior to this whole thing, you know, prior to the world uh, starting to, you know, the, the the beginning of the end here. Or, I'm just kidding. You know what I mean. And listen, I'm not saying don't do Uchikomi. It's just, you know, for, for me, and I can imagine for so many others uh, out there that listen, I mean, gosh, a low number of total Uchikomi I've done in my, in my life, maybe if I were to really count every single one, what, 400,000? 500,000 maybe and for me right now I'm not going to get better doing Uchikomi I would sooner do Shadow Rondori which was an excellent um, training tool for me when I was coming up through the ranks I, I probably will go back to that I I think Shadow Rondori you, you look silly doing it but if you record yourself doing say Shadow Rondori and, and you're moving around and, and you really record yourself you can see little things that you may be doing that could be harmful to your overall judo development. Like maybe you're, you, when you move around, you cross your feet a little bit too much. Or when you go in for that Ippon Sayanagi, um, you're on your heels a little bit or you fall backwards. Or maybe when you do, you know, your Osotogari, it's not a realistic stepping movement. So I think Shadow Rondori is, is, is an excellent training tool. And it helped develop my my Ippon Sayanagi in Rondori. Standing Ippon Sayanagi really helped with that because there was things that I was doing in Rondori that just wasn't evident with the speed of of what everything is going on. But when I took a video of myself doing Shada Rondori, I'm talking this is years ago. Uh, I saw some some things that I was able to correct, and I did, and that directly improved my judo. So maybe I, I might do some Shadow Rondori. I haven't yet, but um, I may do a little bit of that later on today now that I think about it. But something else that I'm also doing is reading judo formal techniques by Otaki and Drager. Now, I have recommended this book before. I have read portions of this book before, but portions of the book specific to Nagi no Kata. I think now is a good time with this coronavirus stuff for me to start really deep diving into Katame no Kata because I don't know the Kata. I know all the techniques in the Kata, but I don't know how to do the Kata itself. And while learning 
the, the kata from the book. Being able to do the kata just from reading the book, that's not really my goal. But at the very least, what I should be able to do is at least explain what the kata is and what the order of the kata is and how the kata should be done. At the very least, I can read, uh, reread judo formal techniques and pay special attention to that section and really have a deeper understanding of that kata because I've, I've always wanted to learn it. Just like I've always wanted to learn nage no kata, I still want to improve my, my nage no kata. But it's really so hard to find training partners to do it and... And for me, I just, I want to be able to know it and I, because I want to be able to teach it one day. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take a, a bunch of competitors or, or, or a competitive class and, and say, hey, we're going to stop what we're doing and we're going to do kata right now. Like that, that's really not my deal. But I know throughout my travels, there, there will be times where I'll come across people that want to learn kata, that want to be able to practice it and and I, I want to be able to at least speak to it. Even if I can't perform it very well, I, I at the very least want to be able to speak to it and maybe be able to help somebody out. So I'm going to spend some time uh, learning that kata through judo formal techniques, which is a wonderful book. It should be in everybody's library. And, you know, something else when it comes to training at home. One thing I wish I had, though, now, and, and I've always... I've always cautioned people against it, but now I kind of wish I had one. Was one of those, um, one of those grappling dummies, y you know, like one of those expensive ones that are like three hundred bucks and comes with arms and it's like one hundred and forty pounds or something like that. Now, I'm not a big fan of those for practicing throws, and I'm still not. However, I think there's a lot of um, sequences that I've been learning in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that I think would have been valuable. If I had a grappling dummy like that, and I know I'm not going to use my wife to practice uh, you <laughs> transitions from uh, from neon belly to side control to you know spinning around, getting to the other side on neon belly. There's a drill that we do where you basically end up in neon belly on both sides. You you kind of circle around the head, that kind of thing. I I know the jujitsu guys know what I'm talking about. It's hard to explain. Uh, on a microphone, but uh, that that's a drill that would have been nice for me to practice with a grappling dummy. You know, maybe I'll um I'll find some old pillows and and shove them in an old gi, and and that could be my grappling dummy. I think I see I saw uh, Dr. Roddy Ferguson put uh, put up a video on his Instagram on how he makes a grappling dummy at home. I, I should probably do something like that, but um I wish I did have a grappling dummy specifically just so I could train practice on the ground because. Yeah, like there's some movement and sequences that I could stand to improve on. But for me, it was the it was the timing of throws that I'm really going to miss out on because I was getting to a point, you know, we, we always talk about um, getting that perfect throw. You know that feeling when you have that perfect throw and it's effortless and stuff? Well, you know, in my own practice, I was getting that, you know, for, for, for years I'd maybe hit something so beautiful, so perfect once every every few months but for me lately it's it was getting to, you know over the past year it was probably getting to about you know a few times a, a a class i i just my timing on how i do certain techniques was was just really getting there and then i was really starting to improve um on left-sided throws and and my my osotogari on my left side is is almost as good as my osotogari on my right side 
And getting good at certain techniques, both left and right sided, has really made my judo uh, very dynamic. Um, and 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 now with this thing, I, I that is where I'm going to see the regression in my judo. My timing, my feel, everything is just going to go out the window. And I, I wish there was a way to replicate that, unless I, you know, which I'm not going to do. I, I I mean, you know, take my wife or. Or, or have some of my kids, uh, you know, take repeated falls for me while I work on my time. I'm not going to ask them to do that. That's a huge ask. And um, they're just, they're just not, they're just not uh, conditioned to be able to do that. So I want to talk a little bit about the Tokyo games that have, I'm sure all of you know by now, they have been postponed till 2021. I just wanted to make some brief mention of it because I really think it's a shame <laughs> for for some of these athletes that are that are old, really for all of them, and I, I've been talking to some people that understand the Olympic cycle and stuff. I, I recently was on a on a Facebook conversation with Chris Round, who was a former uh, guest on the podcast, talking about his uh, his article on on Medium dot com, which I'm not sure if he's done more writing on that. I have to check that out, but but. He, the four to eight year Olympic cycle is a huge deal. I mean, these people put their lives on hold. They put their families on hold. They put their careers on hold, their jobs, their education. Everything is culminates with the Olympics that they're trying to make. So you've got a lot of uh, athletes where everything that they have done in terms of preparation for the Olympics was to culminate right in August of 2020. And to push that out a year is, I mean, for some of these athletes, I don't know if you understand that the struggle for, especially for for athletes on Team USA, and not just in judo, but but in, in many uh, amateur sports uh, across the, you know, uh, across the uh, summer games. I mean, I can only imagine it's it's one more year of trying to secure funding, one more year of training, you know, one more year of trying to get sponsorships. It's just, it's to, to delay it by a year. I mean, I know most of the athletes understand. Actually, I'm sure they all do. But I tell you what, for example, and, and I normally don't like calling people out by name. Um, but take somebody on Team USA, but uh, Nick Del Popolo. I believe he's over 30 by now. Or if not, he's pretty close to it. So, you know, all of these young athletes, you, you know, there's n- there may not be much of a difference between 21 and 22, but when you're toward the end of your competitive career, uh, unless you're competing in the plus 100 kilo cat- category or, or, or the plus 78 kilo category, uh, where those athletes can, can last until their, their early to mid 30s, you know, if you're a guy, you know, fighting at 73s or, or 81s and you... You're you're in your 30s. One more year, that's that's really significant in terms of the impact on one's body, one's recovery, uh, recuperation, all of that. It really adds up, and it's just you know for somebody like Nick and and, and you know Hannah Martin, yeah. You know, and I'm just specifically talking about Team USA. Like the, those those athletes, another year, they're just they're getting older and slower. That may not be the case for somebody, like I said, somebody that's in their early to mid-20s, but but boy, I tell you what, the, the drop-off comes quick. I, I've said it many times on the podcast. For me, I started noticing it 
right around 33. I was probably already slowing down, but but I was still kind of fast in my in my early 30s, relatively speaking. But right when I hit 33 is is when I noticed a drop off, and every year since then, um, the drop off has been significant. And now, I mean, even for myself, I can see a big difference in speed between 42 and 43 compared to 45, which is how old I am now. So I I know all of you know about the Olympics getting postponed till uh, 2021. I'm curious to find out how that will impact um, uh, the All Japan Judo Federation and their rankings. You know, maybe some of the divisions that were heavily contended you know, some of these these athletes, like let's say in, in the plus 78 kilo division, Sarah Asahina, she may have another opportunity to represent Tokyo. I don't know if Tokyo is going to lock it down and that the selections that they made uh, this year is going to carry over to next year. I would be surprised if that happened. And I know for the IJF, they're going to extend the Olympic qualification uh, until I believe it's June of next year. So when things hopefully get back to normal or as normal as they can be, all things considered. We may still have a world championship. We may still have, uh, you know, the Tokyo Grand Slam and all of these other Grand Slam events that, that where somebody on Team Japan can really uh, secure a spot if they were not selected uh, the first go-around. I don't know what they're going to do. I have to believe the battles are similar in many other countries like France and, and certainly Spain and and Brazil and, and Russia. So I, I got to believe that there's some, you know, athletes that have an opportunity that may not have had an opportunity for this year's Olympics. So for some athletes, this could come, this could be of benefit. But I tell you, like I said, I really feel bad for really everybody, but especially the older athletes where the 2020 was going to be it. And maybe it's not even worth it, you know, for 2021. Does somebody... You know, does somebody like Nick DiPopolo, you know, just just call it a career and finally try and get back into the workforce? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know Nick personally. He seems like an upstanding fellow. Uh, same goes with Hannah Martin. I, I don't I don't know either of them personally, but uh, I know they sacrifice a lot to to represent Team USA. I know it costs them a lot of money to travel to all these different tournaments and then the training camps and stuff. They really have given it their all. Um, but man, another year that that's got to be devastating for them. I want to review grip like a world champion 2.0. So as I mentioned earlier, probably about three or four weeks ago now, um, I was notified of a code for judo fanatics and the same code applied to BJJ fanatics. So I was able to get two videos with the code. Um, Bernardo Faria uh, who is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, very well-known Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, um, very personable guy too. He's, he's Of all the people that I see online um, that teach uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, uh, something about Bernardo is really um, really warm and inviting. Just, just He seems like a really good guy, and um, it, it really comes across uh, on camera really well. I, I would say the same thing for a uh, fellow... Um, What's his name? Uh, Marcelo Garcia, an- another guy that just comes across as a very warm, very friendly um, uh, jiu-jitsu guy. He just happens to be, both of those guys just happen to be among the best in the world. But they, they've they not let their ego get in the way and just, just uh, really have a passion for teaching. So 
Uh, but Bernardo put out a, a code to allow people to download one free video uh, in the midst of this coronavirus thing. And it's very, um, very kind of him to do so. So I took advantage of that and I, I got um, gripped like a world champion 2.0 because I figured, you know, I, and I said, I even said this in my last episode, I'm not a big fan of trying to learn judo techniques uh, for, for me, like, you know, watching video. And what I mean is like, take, um, take the old fighting films, for example, the, the Koga Sayanagi. Where, where Koga goes into how he does his Sayanagi. And I, you know, I watch a video like that and I think to myself, well, goodness, that's Koga's Sayanagi. I can't do Sayanagi like that. I could take certain things from that, but I'm not going to learn and be able to do Sayanagi the way Koga does it because Koga's a special athlete and he was a very special talent and still is. And like I, that's not who I am. But with something like Grip Like a World Champion, it's full of drills and... And sequences and stuff that I feel that anybody can do. And you know what I thought was really interesting as I was watching this entire video is... And this is going to be almost a, a, a tribute of sorts to my former coach. My former coach uh, learned, spent some time with Jimmy Pedro at Pedro's Judo Center. I don't know how long he was there. But as far as the content in Grip Like a World Champion 2.0... 70% of it, I probably knew. I already knew. And when I mean I knew, like, I'm not talking about, oh, yeah, I kind of know this stuff. I mean, I'm talking about, no, I really know this stuff. I, I, I could explain it. I could teach it. I'd say about 70% of it I already knew because my judo coach taught me the same things. And he taught them in the same exact way, which was interesting to me because I could really see Jimmy Pedro's influence in my own coach's teaching style just just kind of the same maybe demeanor the same way of explaining things exactly the same I felt I felt like I was watching my old coach you know teach me a lot of the gripping strategies again and what else was interesting to me is that you know like I said 70% of it I really know and probably another 10% of it I was never formally taught but through knowing the 70% like I ended up developing a lot of those same sequences kind of on my own, especially things like attacking right off of the single sleeve grip. So what I mean by that, in a righty-on-righty situation, you always want to try to to dominate your your opponent's uh, power hand. And, and I would always try and do so by, by getting that grip first. But a lot of times, instead of just you know trying to secure my lapel hand, I would just, I would just attack right off that grip. Now, nobody really ever taught my coach didn't really teach me to do that it just was it just always made sense so they were attacks you know whether it was one hand to Tayatoshi or or Osotogari just right off of that that single sleeve grip I would I would just grip and go and grip and attack and and uh, Jimmy Pedro covered a lot of that in this video though the one thing that I thought was really interesting um that nobody's ever really taught me but it makes so much sense is in the video series, Jimmy really takes a stand against just getting a grip. The idea of just get a grip. And and my coach used to say the same thing, don't just get a grip. But what I thought was really interesting was the example of settling on a righty-on-righty situation. Settling for just planting your uh, power hand on the lapel first. 
and I thought Jimmy's point was really interesting, and he's and he's one hundred percent correct. Is that you can't really do anything with that grip unless you're throwing opposite side. And you know, admittedly, over the years, I've gotten very lazy in my grip fighting, and sometimes I'm just you know you know when I'm practicing you know during Rondori, I don't I don't really concentrate on grip fighting as much, and I'll get a, I'll get to that a little bit later, but. Um, a lot of times I just I just get a grip. I just, you know, if he's right there or she's right there, I'll just put my hand on the lapel and and just kind of worry about things from there. I but um but yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I've never heard anybody just be so adamant about it. So much so that he he actually says just getting a lapel grip that's worse than having no grip at all. Um and and being that's worse than being completely disengaged. And and he's right. I mean, unless you're going opposite side, there's nothing you can really do with that. Just a single lapel grip uh, from an offensive point of view. So a lot of the things that Jimmy covers in this video are, you know, grip fighting fundamentals, uh, really getting that sleeve grip first. Um, you know, the same side and opposite side gripping objectives. He covers a lot of common mistakes that he sees players make. Um, talks about countering stiff arming and and you know attacking just over, after a single grip and 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 not um, you know not you sometimes you just can't get that lapel grip so you have to have attack sequences and really and he also talks about a lot of the drilling that um, he does in his club for uh, grip fighting sequences and stuff and again it's really interesting because everything that he covered in terms of the drills that he does. I did the exact same things, and, and he, I, I did them in the exact same way. Um, you know, grip fighting for, for a minute, you know, several rounds, you know, probably probably six or seven rounds of just grip fighting. Um, there was also a lot of talk on, on the cross grip, which I, the, the cross grip for me, that that's, you know, when I'm actively grip fighting, that's a big one for me because I, my gener generic approach, and, and I, I have different tactics when it comes to grip fighting. My generic approach is always controlling uh, the shoulder of the power hand and, and ensuring that no matter what, that the, the other person doesn't get their power hand uh, on, on on my gi first. That That's always kind of been my approach. And, this, and, and in the video, Jimmy breaks down exactly how to do those type of things. So unlike a lot of videos where I say... I, I I say it a lot that I don't I think learning from videos alone is of limited value. Uh, grip like a world champion is is very much an exception, and I think this is the kind of video that beginners can um, practice with right away. I I think if I were to recommend a video series to purchase off of Judo Fanatics for somebody that's a beginner. Absolutely, it should be grip like a world champion 2.0. In my opinion, that should be your first buy. Because if you, to me, again, it's just me. If you end up buying technique videos, you're not a beginner or somebody even intermediate. You're not going to understand the nuances of what those what makes those techniques work. But when it comes to gripping, there's, there's, there's nuances, sure, but... It's it's just gripping. So uh, you know, as long as you have good tai sabaki, as long as you have good um, sugiyashi, as long as you have good posture and good movement, you know, you don't have to be very good at judo to to be really good at gripping. And unlike nagewaza, you can you can do grip fighting. You know, do these drills 
as slow as you need to to get the patterns down and then you could pick up the pace and then you could you could move around a bit and like i said earlier like i can't practice judo i can't practice throws on people that don't know judo but if you got a buddy or a friend or a spouse or 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 even a you know, a, a child that's that's uh, that's your height or your age, not, not your age, but certainly your height and maybe your size. Um, you can have them throw on a gi and you could practice gripping sequences. I highly recommend this to all uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners. It, it, for nothing else, if your throws suck, if you can outgrip uh, who you are competing against, when when a jiu-jitsu match starts, you're you're halfway there to winning that contest because it's very hard to effectively pull guard if you don't have a grip on your opponent or if you have an inferior grip on your opponent. So yeah, I highly recommend for anybody of all skill levels, Grip Like a World Champion 2.0. I've I've watched the original one uh, that came out years ago when the gripping rules were different. As a matter of fact, I tend to think. For jiu-jitsu guys, the original one is is better uh, only because there are grip-breaking sequences that are no longer allowed in judo competition that are still allowed in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's, it, in particularly, <laughs> the one grip-break I got really good at, the two-on-one grip-break, um, I got really good at that and, and attacking right off of that grip-break, but that's no longer allowed. There's other um, things that I've watched on on uh, fighting films and superstar judo, uh, grip-breaking sequences that, that some other countries do, some grip-breaking sequences that I saw some from some of the Mongolian videos. Those things I incorporate in my current grip-fighting uh, strategies, if you even want to call it that. I don't particularly grip-fight anymore because I'm not competing and my goals and objectives for judo development um, go beyond trying to get an advantage in in Rondori. And really, these days, I I kind of use Rondori as like a like a sandbox of sorts. I I don't I don't really care about getting thrown because I've let go of the idea that I feel the need to defend the belt. Because well, you know, nobody I do Rondori with uh, evaluates my judo, so it it really doesn't matter to me whether or not I get thrown. So, I don't grip fight anymore. I, I mean, it saves on my fingers. And when I say I don't grip fight anymore, I'm talking about the really hard rounds of Rondori where I'm incorporating everything within that five-minute round because I, because I used to be preparing for competitions. So, years ago, I, I would, you know, during Rondori, you, I was going to make it my goal that you did not get a hand on my lapel and I was going to try for, to throw from an advantageous grip position every single time. So grip fighting was a, a, a big deal for me. Now, you know, sometimes if I get out there in Rondori and somebody starts, you know, trying to break my grips or whatever, I'll, I'll grip fight a little bit. But but I'm not I, I'm not all constantly looking for that two on one anymore. I just I just don't because I like I said, I have different goals and different objectives I, for, for me these days. Rondori is kind of like solving a puzzle. And I want to try and solve that puzzle and that challenge through through movement and 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 proper timing and and being able to throw in, in a variety of different directions. You know, for for example, let's say someone gets some kind of an over-the-back grip on me and I'm I'm bent over, I'm looking at the floor. In a situation like that, instead of 
I don't know, powering out of that somehow or or I, I would try and throw from that position and, and and probably fail, but at least I would try. I would I would say to myself, okay, I'm stuck here. Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't think about it. I just would uh, I would just try and attack with whatever felt right at that time. But that that's kind of how I approach judo. And if I get thrown, you know, I get thrown. If I if I manage to get in a in an advantageous position, it might be something that I allow to happen again and again. Is is allow somebody to get that over the back grip. So then I can practice. I don't know. Maybe I dive in for a kataguruma. Of course, I'd be grabbing the leg because I don't follow IJF rules in my practice. So, and it doesn't mean I'm a leg diver, but but there are situations where doing good judo in any situation would require you grabbing the leg, in my opinion. Now, to me, if you're a coach, this video is a must-have, and this is this video is a must-watch, and I and I feel that you would be doing your athletes a disservice if you are a coach. Or, or if you're a, you're a wannabe coach, and I, I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but if you you are you want to be a coach, or if you are a coach, and you have students that want to compete, or you want your students to compete, you are doing your students a disservice if you are not teaching these gripping strategies. Because unlike you know somebody like myself that have different goals when it comes to judo development. For a lot of other students, your the, the goals are winning medals and winning competitions. That is the goal. And maybe for some uh, sensei out there, their goal is becoming USA Judo Club of the Year or, or BJA Club of the Year, whatever the case may be. You know, whatever whatever your goals are, if you you if you have goals that are competition oriented, this 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 is a must have. And if you if you're not teaching this. As a coach, you're doing your students a deserve dis, a disservice. No, no, that is 100% no question in my mind about it. I mean, especially if you're in the United States, you have an opportunity for, I don't know, I, I don't even know what they're charging uh, these days on on uh, judo fanatics for grip like a world champion. I think it's like 67 bucks. If you're not willing to spend 67 dollars to help your students get better. At, at grip fighting, which is the first thing anybody does when you step on to the mat after Hajime, then I would question whether or not you're serious about having your students uh, be high-level competitors. And, and, and if you have asp- uh, you know aspirations uh, of being a high-level coach or having or having a competitor go to the Olympics, let's say, or or win a national championship, if you're if you're not teaching this stuff, you, you're you're doing your students a disservice. And I really believe that. And just for the record. I am not. I'm not some paid shill. I just happened to get a free coupon code from the from uh, Bernardo Faria, and I used it to get grip like a world champion. And as I said before, seventy percent of this stuff I've I already know, like know very well, well enough to teach it. And when I have an opportunity to teach gripping or gripping strategies, I I teach a lot of the things that that are already on this video because. My judo sensei uh, taught me these things in in the exact same way, the exact same type of drills. And look, if you're a recreational club and you're a recreational head coach, which you know that's that's what I consider myself to be. I'm not a head coach, but I consider myself recreational. And you want to teach judo without grip fighting and and just use shii as a means for your students to test themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. And and by all means, don't don't teach grip fighting strategies. So anyway, it's a great video. The audio is excellent. 
and I highly recommend it. So I'm going to actually have a guest uh, for this episode, and it's been a while since I've, since I've had a guest, and, and the reason being it's really difficult for me to schedule time. Um, you know, a lot of people that I know don't live in my time zone, and th- th- there's always scheduling conflicts with me and, and potential guests and stuff. So it's it's not that I don't like having guests or don't want guests. It's just very hard to coordinate unless it's with somebody like uh, like Judo Joe, and even then... It's, it's difficult for me to do so, but I have been conversing with a fellow that I, that, uh, he's a tremendous person and we got to talking probably about eight or nine months ago and he sent me a, a message on Instagram and, and he wanted my number, wanted to talk about things. I was like, oh boy, here we go. I, I don't know if this is going to be some psycho listener or, or just some guy that's just never going to leave me alone. But it turns out this guy is awesome. And he's a police officer for the Los Angeles Police Department. And he's part of the homegrown pilot judo program that, that USA Judo has recently rolled out. I, I talked about this briefly uh, when I discussed probably probably late last year the the letter uh, from the Nanka Yudanshikai uh, over USA Judo and the funds that they receive for this program. So Tabren Lee is my guest, and I've decided I'm going to do something a little bit different. This this may work, this may just flop, but I'm going. I the the conversation was a was a lengthy one, and I'm going to split this conversation up into several parts throughout the next several episodes. And for me, the main reason why I'm doing that is is that. A, a little less than half of my audience is from a, another country, so I don't want to, I didn't I don't want to take up an entire episode talking about things specific to USA Judo because that that's going to alienate a lot of listeners. But I do want to separate this conversation into probably at least three parts, and what you're going to hear is part one of that conversation. So without further ado, uh, Mr. Tabern Lee. Tabern, welcome to the Judo Chop Suey Podcast. How you doing today? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. We've been planning this for a while. It's about to happen. Yeah, I really appreciate you coming on board. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, I, I was telling a story of when you first uh, reached out to me, and 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 I remember you kind of asked for my number, and I was at the time I was like, ah, uh, a listener asking for a number. Let's see how this goes. But but then we ended up talking. We've had several conversations, really almost for the past uh, maybe seven or nine months or so. And and I have enjoyed every single bit of our conversations. I really wanted to bring you on on uh, on the podcast to to finally get on audio to some of the things that we talk about because you're I, I really enjoy having a co- <laughs> the conversations that we have, and it's just I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. So. With that, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, your judo rank. I know you do jujitsu. You're you're a police officer. There's so much to cover, but why don't you give just the the, the listeners a taste of of who you are and and what you do, and and uh, go right ahead, please. Well, I uh, run the Hollywood Pal Martial Art Program, which I teach kids. I have the pleasure of teaching them uh, martial arts, mainly judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We also teach them karate. And our goal is to use martial arts as a tool to help enhance their lives. 
it happened for me when I was young, actually um, through the police department. I learned how to wrestle, and that's how I kind of got into the whole grappling, BJJ, judo world. And I'm blessed to kind of be able to return the favor, you know. Uh, I work within L.A., law enforcement, and that's what I do. I We change these kids' lives, you know. When I first took over the program, we were going to um, some smaller tournaments. Then I got them up to doing some um, USJA tournaments, then USA Judo tournaments, then um, the Sports International Jiu-Jitsu Federation tournaments. So I've seen the difference that it's made in their lives, which I knew it would because I tell you, when I got introduced to grappling, it changed my life, totally changed my life, you know. Um, I always say, you know, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu made me the man that I am today because it keeps you honest. You have to look at yourself in the mirror. You know, you can't lie to yourself when you get on the mat. I mean, you can, but you know deep down it's crap. You know, you either did what you needed to do on that mat or you didn't. You got six minutes, eight minutes, whatever the time is, depending on the federation you're uh, competing with. And it just helps out change so many lives, you know. That's, that's the reason I do it, and that's pretty much what we do with the PAL, which stands for Police Activity Leagues. It's the national organization, but most agencies have their own version, their own separate nonprofit under that banner kind of like the Boys and Girls Club or the YMCA, but directly geared for uh, law enforcement officers mentoring youth and community engagement. It's one of the best community engagement programs that exists, and it is underutilized. Um, so you, you, think it's un- you think it's underutilized? I totally do. I totally do. Now, now, why, now, why, why do you say that? Because I, I've heard, I, I've never been a part as, as a, you know, as, as a kid of the Police Activities League. I've heard of it throughout my entire life. I know some of the cities close to where I used to live had a, a, a pal, um, and I've heard of judo clubs being ran out of uh, Police Activities League throughout the country. But you're the first person I've met that actually is, you know, is is a is a significant part of of you know, well, in your case, it's Hollywood pal. What, tell me a little bit about why you feel it might be underutilized. Well, you just actually gave the definition why it's underutilized. I'm the only person, you know, that's affiliated with that. True. You there know? you go. Right. If, if I were to mention boys and girls club, like Leo white, he runs a boys and girls club judo program. If I was mentioned YMCA, those names are, um, recognized, you know, that's what I mean. Um, more departments need to start a program like this. You know, it really helps because, you know, YMCA have their mission, Boys and Girls Club, they have their mission, but this is strictly dealing with like law enforcement. For example, the Marine Corps has the devil pups out here on the West Coast. That's directly geared from the Marine Corps for youth. You know, when you have agencies that are um, large in our country, it, it just helps. You know, people need to know they can trust those that serve their community and what greater way, you know? Of course. Now you're part of the Hollywood pal. Is there, are there other pals within Los Angeles area as well? Or is that really the only one serving Los Angeles? No, there are. There are. Okay, good. There are. So like I said, um, each of them are their own nonprofit because depending what area, you know, say if I'm part of Glenda, you were just in Los Angeles, right? So you went to Malibu, right? That's correct. So, yes. um, LA sheriffs, they call their program. Yeah. But it's still a pal thing. It's just, they call it. Yeah. So like the Malibu station, um, 
depending on their needs, they could have a program. And all these PALs have different activities. That's why it's called Police Activities League. It used to be called Police Athletic League, and some places it still is. It started in New York, where you're from. Right. So on the East Coast, the name is big compared to the West Coast. We're not where we should be on the West Coast. Interesting. You know? Yeah, because I, like I said, you know, growing up in New York City and, and certainly uh, up in Massachusetts near, near Worcester and Boston, I've always, I've always heard of yeah. – oh, it was, but like you said, back then for me it was always a police – athletic league and and i knew it was an, an organization that's that was the extent of it because i my parents never took me to any anything like that because it was just always just a little bit too far to drive but but that's what i that's how i've always heard about it i don't think tampa has one and if they do they certainly don't um do as much outreach but i follow you i or i follow the the hollywood pal on instagram and um it's you you guys really do a lot i see some judo related photos out there but it's not just it's not just judo no i um you know i'm into kids knowing you know as much as they can and also when i started the program we didn't have judo or jujitsu at all it was only karate so i brought in the judo and jujitsu i you know exposed them to that and um i'll never make it just a judo or just a grappling i mean i have a karate background too i think it's all important because you know, long time ago, I fought MMA, and I always tell people in today's age, everyone needs to know how to strike, throw, and grapple. So I think all martial arts, not just judo, karate, any of them, they all should kind of have a similar look in the modern day, you know, from no matter what you're doing, you should know the basics of striking, the basics of throwing, and the basics of grappling. And maybe one day, I don't know, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, we might be there in the martial arts world. But I, I think we have more in common than apart. And we kind of segregate ourselves, and it's kind of unfortunate, you know? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. I think a lot of the segregation has happened just because of the, um, you know, almost like turf wars in a sense, like sometimes yeah. – you know, you got these guys. A lot, a lot of the, the the verbal battles happen online these days. But you know, kung fu guys, you know, uh, bashing on karate guys, karate guys bashing on, you know, you know, kung fu guys or or taekwondo guys. You, you know, things like that. And and there's there's a lot of that um, within martial arts as a whole, as I have observed really over the years. Not just with my involvement in judo, but um, I used to do karate myself. You know. 25 years ago or so and um yeah what kid in the 80s didn't you know what i'm saying so well, i know it was more well, readily was, available right well right i mean you know i i've always joked around but it's kind of true like mr miyagi was my first sensei yeah. as far as i was exactly. concerned like it was it was so influential for me those 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 movies and such and and that that really planted a seed for me of wanting to 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 get into martial arts of some kind it's just it just it ended up being judo for me uh, many, many years down the road. Um, now, about yourself, what is your current judo rank? You're, it's my understanding you are an inst a judo instructor? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a Yodan. Oh, wow, and, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. And then also in BJJ, I'm a black belt as well. So, you know, and I don't care about rank. <laughs> Actually, sure. my coaches are the ones that, like, forced me to get it. And I, I'm grateful. Mike Verdugo, my head coach, um, real coach was Hanchi Tony Raven, the one that gave me my rank. And um, Mike is second to him now. You got to have Mike on one of these days. He's actually 
he is an encyclopedia of knowledge <laughs> with oh, really? USA Judo. Yeah, yeah, great guy, great guy. I had to link you up with him. So, um, but anyway, they put me in this position so I could be a proper coach, you know. So Mike's always on me about getting, you know, he's the one that made me get my coaching certificate and all those type of things because you can't help out others if you're not in the right place, you know. Uh, yeah, so, like, completely understood. Like I'm do, right now with our program, um, for example, like I said, we do karate. So I linked our program with USA Karate so that the kids who come to the program, once they leave, you know, the ones that do make black belt, that carries with them everywhere, you know? Of so course. If they get their black belt from USJA or USA Judo because that's going to carry with them nationally, you know? We were given dojo certificates, and I'm like, I learned a long time ago that's the greatest disservice to ever do to anyone you know, not giving them a certificate by a national body. A lot of people don't agree with that. I understand their thing. But if you're a kid, you've came up, let's say they do want to compete and they don't have the USA judo card, USA karate card, USA wrestling card, that doesn't help them, you know? Right, right. It's kind of a disservice in my opinion. That's just my opinion. No, that's you know? fine. If, if they wanted to, you know, later on rank up and all that, the sooner they're a member, it's beneficial for them. And also, these governing bodies give a great guideline, especially when you're dealing with an organization like mine, you know, where we, uh, everything we do is pretty much grant-based. They do have a great standard, you know, like you have to be safe sport, heads up all these things. Those requirements, they go hand-in-hand -hand with a nonprofit organization. Sure. So for my club, I get, because I've talk with Steve Scott, wonderful guy and all that. But for my club, it really helps out. You know, I even looked into the AAU thing because those insurances really help when you're dealing with liability and stuff like that. So I always encourage people, you know, pick an organization, you know, it might help you out, especially when you're trying to grow something. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So, so your club, um, now you, you run a judo club. I just want to make sure I get this right. Uh, through the police activities league or do you yes. have a okay do you have a a, a club name and, and I, I would or do you have a club name hollywood Powell martial arts that's what it, okay that's so that's what it's yep. called hollywood Powell martial arts and that is affiliated with uh with usa judo is that correct usa judo and usja yes usa judo and and, and the usja all right very, yes. very good so you are from my understanding you are playing, not only uh, are you a part of the Hollywood PAL, but you're also part of the local Los Angeles Parks and Recreation Department. Is, is, is that, do I have that right or no? I am affiliated with the, yes, the Homegrown um, Judo and Parks program. Okay, you, okay so Judo. just, just yes. that specific program, not necessarily Los Angeles Parks and Rec. Well, it's through Los Angeles Parks and Recs. So they go hand in hand. So the Olympics are coming in 2028 if we ever go over coronavirus, right? Yeah. So, right. <laughs> so yeah, that program was pretty much based upon that, you know, because when the Olympics comes here, we actually get a full team. It's rare the United States ever gets a full team for judo, just because, like me and you spoke on the phone, it's so expensive for our athletes to travel abroad and all those things and um, sponsorships and stuff like that. So when we host it, you know, we get a full team. So, of course, we want to try and develop some athletes locally here from the Los Angeles area. 
Last time I was in Los Angeles was in 84. 84, right, and, uh, right. And you know something interesting? I just went to Cal State LA um, about two months ago. And um, I forgot the name of the gym. People are going to be mad at me because I don't know the name. But it's their gymnasium where they play basketball. And that's where the judo uh, tournament was held. Oh, and wow. Okay. There's this one artist that he drew some art for every sport. And in that building, he has his artwork of judo. And it's like these two fat sumo guys kind of in judo geese. It's kind of really interesting. It's some abstract <laughs> art, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's so historical, you know? And the fact that the 84, matter of fact, Eddie Liddy, that's where he competed, where he got his bronze medal, you know, the 84 Olympics. Um, it's kind of a shame, you think, it didn't blow up over here after that, you know. And there's a foundation called LA84 that's still giving out grant money for um, youth programs in the city of Los Angeles. But we, we haven't grown, you know, where we possibly could. And that's another day, another story. But hopefully with what I'm doing, I'm trying to grow it throughout my department. My goal, because we have 21 divisions, is if I can get in the next four years 10 programs, I've done something, you know, and that's my goal. Now, when you, say, when, when you say programs, um, getting up to 10 programs, what are you talking about specifically? Just, just so I'm clear. So in layman's terms, that's 10 clubs. Okay. So, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you're looking, you're looking to develop 10 clubs through the, the pilot program or through, through Hollywood PAL or really all of it. I guess you can say all of it, but mostly through the, um, the PAL programs in our department. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now how, how are I mean, to have, to, to have 10 programs, you gotta have, you gotta have 10 coaches, correct? I mean, how are you looking to, um, I don't know what recruit coaches or how are you going to find those coaches? Cause they, a lot of times, and, and you know, maybe we'll go down this rabbit hole. I, I don't know. It's, there's a lot of um, loyalty to clubs within judo and it's very hard. Let's say, you know, you got a, a, a Shodan or a need on a young guy that's in a club and, and he's been with the sensei for so long. It's, it's really hard to break some of those guys away for, for, for them to start another club. Do you, do you think that's a realistic challenge or, or do you think that's a real challenge? Or maybe I'm, I'm, you know, maybe that's not a challenge at all. Cause I mean, at some point you got to find coaches for these clubs that you want to develop. How do you, do you think you might go about that? Well, so far I've found four coaches. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it's not, maybe I, it's not that hard. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it, it has its challenges, but like anything in life, if you see a hill and you want to get up that hill, it's only one way to do it, you know? Of course. You, you got to make your mind up that you're going to do it, you know? And I think a lot of people, um, they just take the easy way out and say, oh, no, that can't be done. And if you say it can't be done, well, then it won't be done, you know? But if you say, hey, this is my goal, and I know there's other like-minded people out there that they want to help, they want to do this, you know? Like Aaron Kunahara is one of my coaches. Aaron trained with Jimmy Pedro, Travis, and Kayla for eight years. Right. You know, he missed the 2016 Olympics by mere points. Okay. And he's wonderful. You know, Ross Nakamura, he got him to help me out because Ross was helping me out because Ross works for the city also. So there's guys out there that are really doing a lot of things like Valley Judo. Ross is um, one of the main coaches at Valley Judo. And the youth they got coming out of that program is phenomenal. You know, there's a new generation of judoka out there really um, passing that torch and helping these kids out. I mean, 
they've linked up with the Project 2024. That does some great things that helps out some kids. I think the real thing is this, everybody knowing that we're in this together, okay? The real problem from what I see is people say they want to work with you, but, you know, talk is cheap. Those that do, do. Those that don't, you know, they're going to talk and it's like, you know, hey, bless them and keep moving on in your mission. Yeah. You know, because, yeah, there's a lot of, I mean, me and you can talk all day about what's wrong. And I think that's the real problem. All right. My thing that I see, you got some guys that are, you know, in the military, 60 is the max age. You got to retire. Okay. That's like it. It's, if you haven't done all of what you need to do by then, and let's say, let's say if you went into 18 and you're 60, what is that, like 48 years? Yeah, you know? yeah. If, if, if you haven't done all you feel you need to done in that time, come on. You got to trust the people junior to you to keep it going. And those organizations have proved that they do continue on and they do keep going. You know, someone retires out the Army, they don't miss a beat. You don't even know. You know, right. it's still handling Army business. Same thing with your local fire department or police station. Someone retires, that that agency is still going, you know? Your mayor, someone's going to replace him. Someone's going to be elected in, you know? These entities keep going. That is one thing we don't do proper in our sport, you know? People want to hang on. And this is in martial arts in general. I don't want to just bash judo. Of course. But I've seen this in all martial arts, you know? Some people, it's like a Comic-Con thing. This is all they got going. And that's not good. You know, that doesn't help. People need to know, Hey, help where you can help. You know, if your help is passing out spoons at the concession stand of a tournament, well, Hey, that's your job. You know, we, we, and and it's nothing wrong with that. That's a needed thing, but we all got to know, Hey, where we can go. Like my program is hundred percent grassroots. Okay. I've discussed this with you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm introducing kids to the sport. It's a reason I got Ross and Aaron and Mike Verdugo helping because it's going to be a collaboration of these kids developing through other programs. Mine is an introductory program to get them affiliated or interested in the arts, period. Now, where they go from there, hey, I'll introduce them to the people I know. I know a lot of people, you know. If they want to go higher, hey, they go higher, you know. I got one kid from our pop program, which is our college-based program. She just got accepted to San Jose State, you know? Nice. Part of her wanting to go there is because they got a judo program. Got a, I wish, yeah, right. Yeah. I, I would love to see Cal State LA's judo program really uh, step it up a notch so that some of our kids here in SoCal would have that. Like, after the LA Olympics, I think Cal State LA should have been like the San Jose of the Southern California, you know? If that were to happen, that would be so great here in SoCal, you know? Sure. Yeah, of course. Now, so we, you got the homegrown pilot judo program going on through USA Judo. You've got the police activities league and you got, you're running your club out of that. How do you, how do you think, um, we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I want to get your opinion on this, you know, on the podcast itself. Is there a, a plan in place because because you're clearly um, you know very concerned about grassroots and so am I by the way I, I, we I've mentioned this before to you to other people to me grassroots is is the most important aspect of judo I, I think sometimes 
the bigger organizations kind of missed the mark with that um, mm-hmm. in terms of, I, I, I don't know, it, it always feels like, well, maybe I'm wrong about this, but sometimes it feels to me that, that clubs and, and organizations are looking for the next big thing rather than just, just caring and, and putting all your work and passions into what's in front of you. I don't. I don't know if I'm wrong about. I, I could be very wrong about that. But I, I've seen that. No, I've, I know what you're saying. Like, it's like I call it. You know, trying to make the untalented guy this super megastar, and he's totally missing the it factor. You know, it's like you right, said. And it's, not do, and it's not doing that person really any any good. You just no. You no. know, so, sometimes you might even I, I, putting putting. I don't want to say false hopes, but. You know, every everybody's got a a, a natural level of athletic ability, and I, I know we've talked about this before. Like, you know, for example, my I used to do cross country in high school, and and my fastest mile time was was uh, four. My fastest recorded time was four minutes and thirty seconds for a mile, and I oh, suppose yeah, yeah, it's pretty fast. But you know what? I suppose through proper training and nutrition and and having a great coach maybe in my early 20s I might have gotten that down to 415 but I would have never even for as as fit and athletic as I was I had a a ceiling I would there was no way I was making 405 or even a sub four minute mile that just wasn't in me and and I think sometimes you know, sometimes we're, we're trying, it, it seems that, that uh, in my observation, we're making certain athletes or coaches are make, trying to make athletes into something that they're really not, that they're, they're not recognizing that there may be a cap. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense to you, but. No, it makes sense to me. I mean, you know, we, um, and I'd say that problem is because we don't have enough clubs. Okay. You look at BJJ. Whew. Right. In California, Southern Cal, man, it's like the Mecca, you know, from Los Angeles to San Diego. There's so many of them, right? So those stars, they're going to pop up because you got the numbers. I think because we don't have the numbers, we try so hard to make something, you know? Right. And I I, I could be wrong. No, it seems that in L.A., it seems that in L.A. that that there's a ton of – like when I think of hotbeds in judo, I would. Oh, I've always considered LA that area number one. I mean, is that not true? I mean, it's. I, I always thought there was a lot of judo clubs out there, and that it you was. Know what's funny? Strong. It's funny you say that, right? But that's a matter of opinion. There is truth to that. There are far more here than in other places. Okay, but that's all it is. When you look at like the Nanka page and you see how many clubs we have under Nanka. You know, it's greater than in like where you're from. You know, like how many clubs are there in the Tampa area? Um, you know what? I'm not sure in terms of count, but it's probably higher than most places in the country, apart from, uh, um, uh, apart from California. Like, okay. I, I don't think there's as many judo clubs uh, in Tampa Bay as there are in like New York City, for example. But um, I would say maybe there's about probably if I were to count each and every one, maybe fifteen. Okay. Yeah, I think if now, I would account every. Now you see how fifteen is a big number for us, you know, and it's kind of like okay, it's big for judo. It's big for sense. judo, but not not big in general. But it's not. Yeah, when you look at 
Okay, and nowadays I'm starting to see people do it a lot better. You see a lot of guys, they'll have their judo school in a BJJ school. Right. The arts are kind of like, like Keenan Cornelius, I just saw him the other day. He's training with, um, what's my, Justin Flores. Justin Flores, yeah. And he was looking pretty good, you know? Yeah, he's getting I better. Like, I, I see the Instagram. Yeah. He's getting better. He absolutely yeah, he's is. Get, exactly. I was like, whoa, okay. You know, a lot of guys, like um, at the Winter Nationals last year, one of the guys, um, his name's Dominique. I think he's the Otto's guy, right? He came in, and he was doing good in judo. And I'm like, and once again, he's training with Justin Flores. Those guys down there at um, that Club 540, I forget the name of it, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 540 um, Studios or something 540 like that. 540 Studios, yeah. You got a lot of top-notch jiu-jitsu guys cross-training, okay? And I actually got into jiu-jitsu before judo, and I was like, well, this makes sense because this is how you properly take someone down in a gi, right? So right. guys are starting to see that now, you know? But the problem is we, we, we limit ourselves, you know, like me, like I said, my kids train both. They compete both. I look at it as like this. When it's time to go compete in a judo-specific tournament, okay, we'll focus that week or two on the judo rules, you know? Right. Because a lot of times people in this – I don't know why it is in this day and age, people have become specialists where when we were kids, we played everything. We did you know? everything, yeah. So I don't agree with the whole specialist mentality. You know, that's a debatable thing, whatever, each and all. But I don't believe in it, you know? I mean, you look at uh, Matt Barnes. He was actually a football guy, and he played in the NBA. But football was his sport. Now, you start to think, that doesn't even make sense, right? How do you not make it an NFL, but you make it an NBA? Right, you know? right, right. And the polar opposite when you think about, you know, you're getting hit in football, and then he's just shooting baskets and all that. Well, I'd say football made him tough, where basketball was slightly easier, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, he was a tremendous oh. player too, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he's a great player, fan. right? I was a big fan of his. I don't think he plays anymore, but uh, yeah, when he played. Exactly, but you get tremendous. my point? Yeah, absolutely. If, if, if cross-training, Bo Jackson, Deion Sanders, if it was that bad, how could we have athletes like that, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> we do ourselves a disservice, especially when, like, two arts that are cousins to one another, there's a lot to gain. You know, a lot to gain. What's and, it like out in the Southern California? Is, is there is there a, still a divide? Because so some places, um, there there's still some bad attitudes towards Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I, th- I think it's absurd. I'm going to um, be honest with you. With the younger guys, it's, they don't care. You they don't care, younger, right. They don't care. It's not it's, – it's just like what you talk about on the shows. A lot of times it is some of the older guys that are – it's just an opinion. That's all they got left, you know? Right. But most guys now, they, I think they really see the value because if you look at some of these BJ guys, these guys are athletes, you know, in their own. Now, to Absolutely. me, judo is harder and the same thing as wrestling because it's just the rule set, you know. But these guys, I've never seen people take a true amateur sport so serious. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Like, guys, I got friends, you know, my team I'm from is from Brazil. And you got guys, this is really their dream. Where you would think, well, dang, wouldn't you want to go for judo? At least it's Olympic, it's more prestigious and all that. But my point is, there's so many schools, a lot of guys see this as a way, hey, I'm going to become a world champion, I'm going to own a school, you know? Yeah. They're looking at it like this is their future in a sense, you know? 
And if we had those numbers in judo, oh my goodness, you know, imagine if that was kind of like the mindset, although I wouldn't wish that mindset, I kind of steer my kids in a way of education and picking a profession, of especially like look at today, you know, but uh, my point is having those options, it would be great. You know, it would be great. We had to pick like that. And I think we do. I think we have the greatest pick for athletes in this country because we have football, because we have wrestling, you know, and if those guys from football, wrestling, and basketball were cross-trained in judo, oh, my God, we'd have a team like the French team or the Brazilian team. Because yeah. – go ahead. No, no, you go go, go ahead. I don't know what stopped your train of thought. I was going to say, if you look at how structured training is for those programs, they actually have what's called a program. Remember the movie in the 90s called The Program? Those sports have a program. Yeah, right. We, we don't have a program with judo. You know, we, we're trying to develop one right now. But those are sports that have a program. And my point is, because they have a program, you have athletes coming out of it. And when those guys graduate from college and have nothing to do, some of those guys, if they crossed over, man, they could be Olympians. You look at some of those football players that go buy bobsleds to become an Olympian. What's her name? Um, Lolo Jones. She went to the Olympics. You know, you saw what happened to her. Then next thing, she went to the Winter Olympics. She bought a bobsled. Right. So we have the athletes, and I don't think we're going after some of those athletes that we should, you know? So that's going to do it for the first part of our interview with Tabron Lee. And we're going to continue the conversation in the next episode of this podcast, which, like I said, I, I always say the same thing. I hope it's sooner than later, honestly. So I think I'm going to start wrapping up this episode here. But before I do that, I wanted to bring attention to all of you. There's actually a new judo-related podcast called Tatami Talk. And I believe you can find uh, this new podcast on uh, a, a tool or a site called Anchor. And the two hosts did a really good job with it. They uh, they they had some interesting uh, conversation. They had a nice intro. The audio was was pretty good. So I highly suggest all of you that are listening, uh, give uh, give to Tommy Talk a ch- uh, a listen. Excuse me. All right. So that's gonna do it for me. The after party's coming up after the Gangnam Style credits. So with that, I hope you all have a great day. I hope you all have a great rest of the week. Stay safe out there with this virus thing. Hopefully, we'll be winding things down uh, sooner than later. Stay strong out there. And with that, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. So the after party, uh, well, I don't know if you can hear in the background, it's raining where I live right now. So I apologize for any unnecessary or unplanned background noise. So if some of you are new to the after party, it's basically the section where I like to talk about things that are outside of the scope of judo. And I wanted to start a discuss with this or started a discussion with this interesting documentary on World War II that I've been watching while doing my using my rowing machine um, at home. 
It's called World War II in Color, and really, it's a fascinating documentary. I just, um, it's a lot of things about World War II history that I just didn't know about. And the thing is, is that as I've gotten older, I'm taking more and more of an interest in history. And this documentary is great. I mean, you know, so I was watching the episode probably a few nights ago on the bombing of Pearl Harbor. In all these years, I've always known the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. I never once gave consideration as to why they bombed Pearl Harbor. Because, you know, I mean, most of my life, I've not been really interested in history. Even though my grandfather served in World War II, uh, and I, I heard some stories, but I, I just didn't know why the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So I, I thought that was really interesting. I thought it was interesting to hear some of the reasons why Germany and, and their influence grew in that area of the world, you know, 85, 90 years ago, how they felt after World War One. There's just a lot of interesting tidbits that I didn't know. And look, I'm not I'm not any historian of any sort, but after watching this documentary, I, I, I'm kind of left wondering what could have happened if the, the Nazi army didn't invade Stalingrad. And I'm just openly wondering this out loud from a military and strategic standpoint, not defending the, the horrors and atrocities uh, that Nazi Germany inflicted on millions upon millions upon millions of people. I'm certainly not not defending that by any means. I'm just wondering out loud, my goodness, what could have this world looked like if if the German army passed on Stalingrad uh, over hubris and, and maybe took another more strategic city or area in Eastern Europe. So, yep, glad it didn't happen, but I still thought it was a fascinating documentary. I highly recommend it. So are any of you out there watching Ozark on Netflix? I just, season three dropped uh, maybe about two, three weeks ago, and it's been fabulous. I'm so, I love that show. I thought this, this season was just as strong as the other two seasons. A lot of people don't like uh, Jason Bateman's portrayal in that show. And I can, I can see why they don't because it seems like he's just playing a serious Michael Bluth. It's, it seems like he's only got one style of acting, but uh, but I'm, I, I'm still enjoying the show nonetheless. I think the role is perfect for him. My favorite character in that show, maybe in all of television, is Ruth. She's just amazing. And that show is just uh, just solid top to bottom. Uh, what else? Bosch came out. I love that show. Season six of Bosch. I, I'm I'm still working through that season right now, but it, it's just been a fabulous show. And and speaking of fabulous, I know I talked about this before, but Better Call Saul is having its strongest season. I and I have no idea how they're going to end this show. I don't know if it's going to be this year. I don't know if there's going to be a season six. I sure hope there is because. Like I said before, in some ways, this show is better than Breaking Bad. And and it, you know what it is? It's, it's that no action can happen in this show. No shootouts, no explosions. Nothing of the sort can happen like that. And the show just is carried by such great acting and great writing. It's just... It's phenomenal to me. I, I love that show. I, it's it's. If you haven't watched it, you you really gotta get it. The first couple of seasons are good, but not great. But it, it just really picks up if you, it, you know, if you can deal with with just strong dialogue and not a lot of action. But it, it's just it's just a fantastic show. Let's see what else got released. Oh yeah, Money Heist, uh, season four, whatever you want to call it, episode four. 
I'm not sure exactly how they call it. They call it um, series. I, I I don't know. It's I look at it as seasons. And Money Heist is definitely one of the best shows on Netflix. I know I say that for every show I bring up, but it's true. Uh, the only the only thing is is that unless you understand Spanish or or uh, you can at least deal with with words at the bottom of the screen, it's um yeah that's probably the only drawback for people that only speak English. But if if you can deal with with uh, subtitles or if you understand Spanish, this show is amazing. It, it, it's just really something else, and and lots of twists and turns, and lots of action and, and and things like that it's uh, la casa del papel is the spanish title for it it's made in spain oh it'd be okay so yeah money heist i gotta get to this tiger king have you guys seen it let me t- that that show is the craziest thing that i've ever seen on any documentary period and let me tell you something as as somebody who lives in tampa and has been here for 20 years I'm sure most of you who've watched the documentary have already seen the uh, seen some of the memes uh, that have been out there about Carol Baskin. But let me tell you, 100% true. If Carol Baskin was a young woman walking around the streets of Nebraska Avenue in Tampa, she was not just taking a walk to get away from her husband. She was a working girl. There, that, that is, there is no doubt about that. 100%. I mean, whether she got arrested or has a record, I have no idea. But I can tell you, if you're a young woman walking Nebraska Avenue at night, you're a working girl. Period. End of story. And I have not been to Big Cat Rescue. It's It, it was one of those places that I've always wanted to scratch off um, on my bucket list of things to visit in, in Tampa and in Florida as a whole. There's a lot of things I haven't done in this state that I want to experience, but... I'm taking Big Cat Rescue off the list. I'm not going to support that business. And I know the documentary and documentaries as a whole can either paint a person's in a good light or a bad light. But for me, she's running a for-profit business off of the backs of volunteers that think they're going to be interacting with with tigers and 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 a lot of other exotic animals. And most of them are not. And not only that, her tigers in cages are no different than Joe Exotic's tigers in cages. Same same thing. As a matter of fact, when I looked at the documentary, it looked worse because those tigers had to put their head in a metal cage just to eat. I mean, that, that's not, that is not a way to run a, a zoo or a sanctuary. I, I don't. I, I don't support that. I'm not I'm never gonna go to Big Cat Rescue uh, because it's hardly a rescue. It's a it's a money making scheme as far as I'm concerned. And she's using the government and she's using uh her influence in local politics to, to make her the only game in town, not only just in town, but the entire country. If it was up to her, she would shut everybody else down except for her. So there's no way I can support that with my dollars. Absolutely not. All right, so let's see. Want to talk a little bit about the coronavirus? Loop back to, around that again, but from a different angle. I, you, you, my company is asking, uh, or it's, I know they're going to be sending out a survey soon to ask associates if they would like to continue working from home. Now, for me, that's a one hundred percent yes. I've complained many times um, to anybody that will listen that my commute you know, in Tampa Bay is, is pretty rough. Uh, most days it takes me an hour and a half, uh, to get to work and sometimes longer to get back home. Um, and I know the president of my company has found that 
all associates working from home with the stay-at-home order and stuff, we're just as productive at home as we are in the office. So I'm really glad to see that no, not only the president of my company, but I would venture to guess other companies as well are seeing that their associates are just as productive staying at home, working from the comfort of their own home as they are being in the office. So I really hope that when this whole thing is said and done and all the stay-at-home orders are lifted, that we see a real change, a real renaissance of something where companies really downsize in their office space and and allow their associates to work from home. It doesn't mean it doesn't. It has to be 100% of the time uh, that we all work from home because even if I was able to, even if I was allowed to work from home every hour of the day, whatever the case may be, I still would want to go into the, into the office once or twice a week. I do find that there's a lot of value even in my industry in IT with, with face-to-face communication and, and that kind of collaboration. But but there's so much that without a formal meeting and such that I don't really need to be in the office every single day. And, and it's not, you, you know, if you can get me off the road and get so many people like me off the road, that'll mean a better commute for uh, essential workers and people that must travel to their jobs. You you can't, let's say, stock shelves or make pizzas from home and, and you, you know, and, and run a, a restaurant from home and that kind of thing. Of course, you have to go into the office, but how much better would it be if a lot of the staff people that work, you know, on a computer all day can just do their jobs from home? You, you would take tens of thousands of cars off the roads every single day, and that would be better for the environment. It would be better for for uh, people's stresses, and people can get to work much faster. Just overall, it would be better. The infrastructure of our roads would be would not be, uh, you know, wear down as quickly. You know, people would save in fuel uh, because the price for fuel wouldn't be nearly as high if there just isn't a, as much of a demand. I mean, the the benefits would just be all around. So I, I'm hoping that when things come back, I know with my company it's going to be different. I hope that for all of you that may work a, a desk job, th- that that your employer will allow you to continue to work from home if you want to do that. All right, so that's it for me. I'm ending this party. Talk to you all later.